The reading of the scriptures from Acts chapter 13, be reading verses 13 to 43. So hear the word of the Lord, and may we hear in faith from Acts chapter 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and uh, Sidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed 
from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The uh, greatest event in redemptive history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, meaning that our response to it is of epic significance. Uh, it's not something that you can just pass by. Uh, it's not something that you can say doesn't apply to me, doesn't work for me, I'm just going to ignore it. It is of epic significance uh, because uh, it drives you uh, one way to the other uh, to uh, the embrace of restoration or a ruin. And that is the message that the Apostle Paul brings in a synagogue this morning. He proclaims the resurrection in the history of Israel and the Scriptures as a vindication of Christ, of the Messiah, and mandating uh, the outcome in the human heart either of restoration or ruin. When we think about the geographic progression of the apostles, uh, the resurrection is really the driving force. It's the reason they're going forward. Uh, in spite of uh, the great difficulties they've encountered, tribulation, they continued forward. So it's a driver of the geographic expansion of the church. And we have that uh, in verses 13 uh, to 14. Uh, the reason that the apostles are engaging in this first missionary journey. So from Cyprus, the apostles go to Perga. Uh, Luke tells us that John Mark defects to return to Jerusalem. There are no details, but uh, like many problems in life, uh, this issue is not going to go away. We'll see it again. Uh, the reasons he defects are obviously personal. I think that in and of itself is very, very important. It's not theological. Uh, there is a remarkable unity in terms of the content of the apostolic message. So what's the personal reason? Again, uh, is it fear? Is it hardship? Is it personality? Uh, probably uh, that's really the heart of the matter. It's just simply the personality of the fact that uh, John Mark is upset that leadership is shifting uh, from Barnabas to Paul. Obviously, that John Mark preserves, prefers, pardon me, uh, Barnabas. They were cousins. So he leans towards his cousin. Uh, but nonetheless, he defects. From Perga, they go to a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch in the Galatian region, uh, and the official invites them uh, to speak. And here the Apostle Paul gives the content of the missionary journey. Essentially, the content is what I've suggested, of the greatness and the majesty and the epic significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And the resurrection here in verses 15 to 31 is central in Israel's history as a vindication of Christ. Uh, The Sabbath discourse is a history lesson parallel to Peter's uh, lesson in Acts chapter 2 and Stephen's lesson in Acts chapter 7. It's a history of messianic expectation throughout the great periods of Israel's history, uh, the patriarchal period, bondage in Egypt and the Exodus, the wilderness, the conquest and judges, the monarchy, and the last great Old Testament prophet in John the Baptist. In each epoch, Israel rejected Christ and the messianic expectation. And uh, the significance of that is that everywhere in the Old Testament is a proclamation about Christ and the covenant of grace and redemption. Everywhere. Everything is about Christ. The prophets, the priests, and the kings, and the institutions of the tabernacle and the temple, the law, and all of the events are about Christ. That's the intent of the divine author. And so Israel has rejected the intent of the divine author of the Old Testament. Obviously, the Old Testament reveals the Son and His majesty in a very shadowy form. Nonetheless, the revelation, the proclamation is evident to the man of faith. Let's look at a couple of verses that uh, manifest this. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Uh, Paul tells the church, don't let anyone be your judge in regards to food or drink or respect to uh, a festival or new moon or Sabbath day. Then Paul says, because these things are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. Context again is uh, Old Testament revelation. Institutions, the priesthood. The author says, who serve as a copy and shadow of heavenly things, if you will, pointing to Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come. What's to come? What are the good things? Christ and His resurrection. Uh, We find this explicitly stated by our Savior in Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 27. And beginning with Moses, Jesus picks up the lesson of Moses and all the prophets And he explained the things to them concerning himself in all of the Scriptures. In verse 44, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And of course they are fulfilled in him. Making a decision point of epic significance because of who Christ is. You simply cannot walk by Him. You simply must not ignore Him because of what He accomplished in terms of the restoration of His people or the ruin of those who reject Him. 
that everything in the Old Testament points to Christ. And Paul is driving the very same point. The Bible is history. But more importantly, it is redemptive history about Christ. And Israel failed to recognize the Messiah. They passed Him by. They rejected Him to their ruin. And based on this, Paul addresses the sons of Abraham and the God-fearers in in the synagogue. Let's look what he says, uh, Acts uh, 13, uh, verse 23. That God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Look again at verse 26. To us the word of this salvation is sent out. So Paul is bringing this message to the synagogue. This message of epic significance uh, that demands uh, a response. It's not something you can neglect. And consistent with their forefathers, the present generation failed to recognize the Messiah and was complicit in executing an innocent man. They would probably say, well, he died and was buried. So why should I believe him? But God vindicated him and resurrected him. And that was proof uh, that uh, he was the Messiah. Again, look at the 30th verse of Acts chapter 13. But God raised him from the dead to vindicate him, to display him publicly uh, that he was uh, the great King Messiah. That he conquered death, that he appeared to eyewitnesses who are now witnessing to them. The shadows of the Old Testament are gone. They have receded in light of the majesty of the light who is Christ. And they, of course, have disregarded the resurrected Messiah. The compelling application is, of course, to us this morning. You must not uh, because of what it means of epic significance. In verses 32 to 37, the resurrection of Christ our Messiah is central in Old Testament Scripture as a vindication of uh, who he was. So Paul, if you will, turns from the history of Israel that is everywhere and in every place about Christ to Old Testament revelation in the Word of God that everywhere and in every place speaks of Christ. Paul preaches the good news of Christology and the promises made to the fathers in the Old Testament. Look at verse 32. We preach to you the good news of the promise made to the Father. The promises of the Old Testament pointing to Christ. And now He has come. It's a decision point of manifest importance because it means either restoration or ruin. It's a beautiful text from the Apostle Paul to this very end in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For as many as may be the promises of God in Him, namely in Christ, they are yes. All of the promises of the Old Testament are yes in Christ. There's not a single no driving each of us to an epic decision point in terms of who He is 
And the promise made to the fathers has been fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus, verse 33. God has fulfilled the promise, and then he raised up Jesus. And now Paul turns to three Old Testament illustrations that speak to Christ. They all speak to Christ, but he's going to use in the synagogue on this particular morning simply three. Uh, the first is Psalm 2-7. The context is uh, one of political intrigue and the desire of the nations to throw off the rule of God in regard to his regent, David. And God answers uh, the enemies who are sowing the seeds of insurrection. He says, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. It's an implied allusion to the a great promise uh, to David in 2 Samuel 7 of the perpetuity of his reign. But let's look at Acts 13 and verse 33. God has fulfilled this promise to our children that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in 2 Psalm, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. In the ancient Near East, the kings were the sons of God. The begetting is a figure of speech. Christ was never begotten. He's the eternal Son of God. Uh, but he is also King Messiah. And as King Messiah, he's the Son of God. The only Son of God of epic significance. It's a coronation formula. And the greater fulfillment is in Jesus and the resurrection and the perpetuity of the reign, meaning that Christ is David's eternal successor as King Messiah. Therefore, he is not a king that you can deal lightly with. He is God's king. God's appointed vice-regent to rule and to reign. World without end. You cannot pass him by. You must not give him short shrift. It's dangerous to ignore him because his work accomplishes either the restoration of his people or the everlasting ruin of those who reject him. Whether you believe it or not, that is what is insignificant. The second quotation is from Isaiah 55, verse 3. It's found in Acts 13 and the 34th verse. And as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. The context of Isaiah is the promise of divine blessing in the venue of uh, an invitation to come to a celebration. The blessing is the messianic promise of the restoration of the Davidic throne in the servant son. The restoration of the Davidic throne in the servant son. The eternal throne. Our Lord's eternal kingship. It's manifestly important we understand that. Sometimes it's difficult in our culture as Americans. Uh, every few years we vote people into office. Jesus is not voted into office. He's a perpetual king. No succession whatsoever. He doesn't need votes in light of who he is. He doesn't look to us 
to vote for him. He simply manifests the greatness and the majesty of who he is. God's appointed king. Deal with him lightly to your peril and to your ruin. And Paul clearly states that the fulfillment of this promise is in the resurrection. The sure blessings of the perpetuity of the Davidic throne come to Christ and are totally fulfilled. The final citation is from Psalm 16.10, Acts 13.35. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, thou wilt not allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. The context of the psalm is David is threatened with premature death. He's delivered. But in faith, he looks beyond his own life to the end of death. And the resurrection of Christ is the beginning of the fulfillment, making the fulfillment sure and certain. Think about it. David is telling us about a day in which death will end. Jesus begins that day. Think about our culture. Everything is about how we can prolong life. We have laws that are set up to deal with those who take life unjustly. Uh, we have laws, uh, massive laws that are set up as to how to run our healthcare system to prolong, to prolong life. But Jesus sees a day in which death will end. And Christ has begun that day in his resurrection. He beat death. Death will not win. And all who have come to him and sued for peace and who believe in him will find the end of death in the living Savior. That Christ has secured the beginning of the end time restoration and a glorious future. So that he is the great decision point of restoration or ruin. Again, not something you can wish away. Not something that you can pass by lightly. Not something that you forget. Not something you can say doesn't apply to me. I don't believe it. He is the end of death. You either go to him or death will triumph over you in utter everlasting ruin. A decision point of manifest significance and importance. In verses 38 to 39, the resurrection is central to the blessings of forgiveness and justification. The logical conclusion of the resurrection of Christ is seen in the words of the Apostle Paul, therefore, let it be known to you. In light of everything that he has spoken of about Christ, in terms of Old Testament history and Old Testament prophets, Paul is saying, therefore, know this. Forgiveness and justification are in Jesus. Forgiveness and justification are in Jesus. While Paul doesn't say it, I will. And they are nowhere else. Nowhere else can you find forgiveness and justification other than in the living Christ. You can scour over every inch of our geography of the world. You can descend to the deepest oceans. 
You could be on the top of a rocket and go into space. And everywhere the message will be forgiveness and justification are only in Jesus and nowhere else. Love the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Notice the present tense we have. No maybes, no perhaps, no, no future event. In Christ, we have forgiveness. We also have resurrection. If you've come to Christ, you've been resurrected. Notice the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's the beginning of restoration in your own life, that he has resurrected you to the heavenly places in Christ. It's already begun. It's the majesty of the resurrection. It's the majesty of the restoration that comes as the result of the resurrection. It's already started. I'm not denying it's a future event, but I'm simply affirming that it's already begun. We have been resurrected to the heavenly places in Christ. Mandating the certainty that what God has started in his Savior will be finished when he comes again for us. That in Christ we have the greatest of prizes. The greatest of prizes. I'm always amazed by the countless uh, game shows on television. Win this, win that. I don't find a great deal of the popularity in terms of the shows, but occasionally you pass them by, but uh, you uh, know of what I speak. The prizes of the world, they will all pass away. Christ does not pass away. In him we have the greatest prize. In him we have indescribable wealth. Much of our culture, I understand the measure of it, is about economic gain. It's a place for that in your life. I understand. We need our daily bread. But never lose sight of the fact, regardless of your economic standing in this world, that in Christ, you have the greatest of all possible gain that will never be taken from you that will never erode, never retreat, never encounter rust or be tarnished. It will only grow as the resurrection is manifested all the more in your life. In Christ we have justification. You know that justification is a legal declaration of righteousness based upon the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. It is the entire basis of our salvation. It is a doctrine of profound significance that we are saved based upon the works of Christ alone. 
His righteousness imputed to our accounts and therefore accepted by God the Father for all time. I love the words of the Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9, and may be found in him, having a, not having a righteousness not my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Implicit in that is the appeal of the gospel to believe upon Christ, to flee to him, to sue for peace, to acknowledge what he has done, uh, that he bore your sins upon the cross, was resurrected to conquer, manifesting as a declaration that he paid the penalty and beat death for you. That in him you too will beat it uh, because of who he is. Every wrong cured, we are declared not guilty. It's a great blessing. It's, it's like forgiveness. One of the greatest blessings of life is to know that uh, we will uh, stand before the eternal throne of everlasting justice and we've been declared, declared past tense, not guilty because of Christ. Because of Christ. Much of our world uh, is dominated by religion, uh, trying to uh, do works to please God. Uh, it's an impossible task. Uh, because of the perfections of God the Father, only the works of perfections are accepted, and that, of course, is the perfection of Christ, the Son of God. And so, forgiveness and justification, secured for us by Jesus, unless he is rejected, which means ruin, because restoration is only in him. It is in no one else whatsoever. No other analysis gods. No other parallel religions. Only one. Only one. And from him emanate eternal restoration or eternal ruin. Because there is no forgiveness or justification outside of him. None whatsoever. Beautiful illustration of this in light of uh, the doctrine of the resurrection, Revelation chapter 1. In verse 18, Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. And the living one, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and hell. It means you cannot pass him by. You must not ignore him. You must not awaken on a Sunday morning and say, I'm not going to go to church. I don't want to be told about Christ because uh, the more I know, the more I'm held responsible. All that's totally irrelevant. In light of who he is, you are responsible by nature of what he has done. The manifest decision point for your life is either restoration or ruin. Uh, neither one can be bypassed. But in the blessedness of the resurrection Christ, there's the manifestation that he has begun the restoration. He's also begun the ruin. And we must not deal lightly with him. 
One of the great Old Testament texts that speaks to uh, the resurrection is Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. Uh, Daniel writes, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, and these to everlasting life or restoration, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt or ruin. Two ways, two ends, two men, two destinies. The decision point is Christ for restoration or ruin. And so all of the Old Testament history and all of Old Testament revelation points to our redemption accomplished by our great Savior, who makes it manifest and displays it in the resurrection. It vindicates him as Messiah. It's a basis for our future vindication and total restoration. It's a compelling reason to believe, notwithstanding the outcome of not believing. We have another compelling reason uh, this morning in the sacrament of the Lord's table. First Sunday of the month, which traditionally is our Sunday at Grace Bible Church to meet the living God in the sacrament of the table of our Savior. As you know, the institution of the service is set against the background of the Passover, uh, which signifies uh, Israel's uh, redemption from Egypt and Pharaoh uh, by the shedding of the blood of the Lamb posted upon uh, the doorposts of the uh, houses of Israel that the blood of the lamb was shed, the household was marked, and the angel of death passes by. What a beautiful picture of the greatness of what our Savior has done for us in shedding his blood to mark our lives that the angel of death must pass us by. Uh, This is our uh, covenantal meal with Christ in celebration, what he's done. What he's doing, of course, Uh, what he uh, will do uh, when uh, the promise of the resurrection uh, becomes uh, manifest and complete and visible in all of the lives of all of the sons of God. The importance of uh, the Lord's table is it's a visible sign. It's also a visible sign that we eat and drink. Uh, But uh, the point is... uh, uh, is, is not in the sign. It's in what is signified. And that can only be apprehended by faith. By faith. That we believe what he's done for us. We believe who he is. And so the table signifies the benefits of the new covenant and our spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. As we apprehend it by faith. I remind you in terms of preparation for the sacrament, uh, the Apostle Paul enjoins us to examine ourselves. Uh, This includes a proper discernment of the elements which represent the sacrifice of Christ. It's a meal, but much more than a meal. It's fellowshipping with our Savior, who is the head of the table, who comes uh, by the Great Spirit, in his presence to remind us of his daily provisions 
And therefore, we should come in elements of faith and repentance. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 97. What is required for worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? It's required of them that worthily partake of the Lord's Supper, that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon Him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience, lest coming unworthily they eat and drink judgment to themselves. The significance of this is, uh, in terms of Grace Bible Church, this is an open communion. Uh, this is not the table of Grace Bible Church. It's the table of the Lord. If you know the Savior, you're welcome to come and to partake. Uh, it's also the reminder that uh, if you know the Savior and you are not engaging in some unrepentant sin for which you uh, are in rebellion, uh, then again, you are welcome to come uh, as you properly discern the elements of what has been accomplished by Christ and His body and His blood. There are, of course, many spiritual, biblical warrants, if you will, um, simply because of time. I'm going to read one from the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 6. Jesus there said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That's our warrant to come. Uh, this morning, because of our current health events in our nation, uh, the elements are at the front of, of the church. Uh, if you're on the south side, they're here to my left, uh, north side to my right. Uh, if you're in the balcony, you must make the uh, trek to the front of the sanctuary. But it's a worthy trek to eat and to drink and receive by faith uh, that which our Savior has ordained to nourish us uh, by grace, to sustain us and to keep us. In a moment, I'm going to go and uh, uncover the bread uh, as well as uh, uncover the cup. And then in your own conscience, if you wish to come and to partake, the elements are respectively where I have mentioned. Uh, you should uh, momentarily pause and perhaps give thanks, uh, eat the bread, and then uh, partake of the cup. If you wish, as some of you uh, have in the past, uh, uh, taken the cup and returned to your seat to continue to pray and to uh, have fellowship with our Savior, you're certainly welcome to do that. Uh, but the importance is to come with the majesty of true faith in your heart, apprehending the totality of what Christ means. Uh, all of the benefits of the new covenant, belonging to him, coming under his surety, his safety, his covenantal protection, 
and manifesting that we await the day in which he will come and uh, receive us unto himself in resurrected bodies. Respecting the wine, I remind you, in the center of the service, uh, there, is, there is wine. Periphery, there is grape juice that each may partake in the freedom of their own traditions. Uh, but more importantly, uh, the reminder that our Savior drank the cup of judgment to its most bitter dregs so that you drink the cup of the new covenant. Well, let's prepare our hearts uh, to uh, receive the elements of the table. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the gift of the Son, the greatest gift of all time. We treasure Him. We esteem Him of the greatest of significance. We display our affection for Him because of His love for us. We're reminded that He gave His life a ransom, the one for the many and that he drank the cup of judgment, that we might escape the wrath of God that we so richly deserved, and drink the cup of joy, celebrating our new life in him. Having partaken, Lord, bless us individually and corporately that we might shine as lights in a dark world, and so testify that we belong body and soul to our great and only Redeemer, even Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. In the supper, our Lord offers the bread and the cup to believers to manifest our share in his death and resurrection and to unite us all the more to him and to each other. Having so partaken, we announce that Christ is our life and that he shall come again to call us to the great supper of the Lamb. May the sanctifying grace of his spiritual presence enable us to wait faithfully for that great day. Well, I want to thank you for coming uh, to be with us this morning. Uh, I trust in uh, God's great providence and the work of His Spirit that we have met the living Christ in His Word and, of course, in His sacrament. And may God uh, bless us uh, in both uh, great encounters.